Well, good evening, everyone. So we're reading from the great Bhagavat Purana. And this is the fourth chapter of the first canto out of twelve cantos. So we're quite in the beginning. And, uh, and what's taking place thus far is in the context of an explanation of the setting in which this book was originally spoken thousands of years ago. Some of its um, principal philosophical and theological uh, foundations are also uh, being brought out. Mm -hmm. And um, such is the nature of the text in one sense because it's, a, it's largely a narrative. And so narratives, of course, are easy to listen to and more than just uh, abstract philosophy. And uh, in the context of the narrative, so much abstract uh, philosophy and theology um, comes through. So it's a nice format. And... This particular book, the Bhagavatam, is said amongst to be amongst the Hindu sacred texts to be the the kind of, well the kind of the ripened fruit of the tree of the of the of the sacred uh, wisdom. If the sacred wisdom in all of its many texts was compared to a tree with many branches of knowledge and so on and so forth. And this text is said to be the ripened fruit. Not only the ripened fruit, it's described as being nigamakalpa toro galitam falam. Galitam falam means falam means fruit, and galitam means actually fallen. So the ripe fruits, they fall from the tree. And the implication is that the text is so nice, it's so user friendly. Of course, this is written thousands of years ago, so. Uh, it might not seem as user-friendly to us. We have to sort screw through the language and the cultural baggage that's that it's packaged was packaged in and so forth. All of which had so much relevance then, some of which doesn't have as much relevance now and so forth. But at any rate, the idea was that the ripened fruit it falls from the tree, and you don't even have to climb up on the branch to get it. It's very it comes to you. So. It's the idea of the sacred the idea that if the sacred texts are talking about spirituality as they are about God, this is the text in which God becomes like comes bridges the gap between humanity and and the Godhead on his own terms, so to speak. Kind of it's a it's a book about the outpouring, if you will, of the love of the Godhead. For the uh, for everybody else, so to speak, a nice idea, and of course it's a little different than the way it's um, explained in, in in Christianity, but uh, <laughs> but it's uh, it's, it's uh, there's a similar idea there also. God made Himself accessible. Indeed, indeed, there's kind of a comparison in, in, that's worthy of making in a sense that in Christianity you have what's called the New Testament, which was supposed to have like superseded the books of law and so forth in many respects, and um, God was more available, the New Testament being a testament 
a testimony about the revelation of the Christ and essentially his path, his, 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 his message of love, which is understandably as Hinduism has been very much distorted over the centuries into a lot of rules and often <laughs> not much, much love. The spirit of it is, is often lost. This is an, an unfortunate um, inevitability I believe that in the dissemination of spiritual wisdom there will be a gravitation towards the the form rather than the substance. We're drawn in by the substance and then we gravitate towards the form that it comes in and lose sight of the substance and argue with people over you have a different form than I have the form and missing the point that we both were drawn in for the same substantial reasons, the different spiritual paths and so forth. So fundamentalism is a kind of an unfortunate inevitability, inevitable happening um, in, in the context of the dissemination of spiritual wisdom. And so once we've found our path, we're going to have to be found sometimes within the path, refound as to what it's really saying, what it really means, and so on and so forth. So at any rate, the New Testament... Um, and then here in this this book, the Bhagavata is kind of like the New Testament of the sacred texts of of India. It's kind of like the final word of all of these um, great uh, Puranas and the Vedas and so on and so forth. And it's supposed to be very, um, as I say, very user friendly, very generous. The uh, the path that it it speaks of it's the it's called Bhakti. Bhakti means path of love. So, <clears throat> um, the, the story, anyway, of the texts is very interesting, as we've heard. As we're hearing, I should say, it's a speaking within a speaking within a speaking. It's a narrative within a narrative. So, the sages uh, at Naimi Sharanya were inquiring from Sutta, and in the context of answering their, their pertinent and very interesting questions, he starts to tell a story of how those questions were answered for him in another setting. And that setting was the one in which the emperor of India was cursed to die in seven days. And so he went to the bank of the Ganges and fasted for seven days and night nights with one uh, interest uh, with a kind of a one-mindedness of what is the m- most important thing to do at the time of death. Really want to know how do you solve the death problem? Hmm? How should you conduct yourself in life in such that death is no is not a problem? Hmm? Um, and there he was emperor, so he had everything. He had everything. And he ate, you know, peeled grapes and so forth. And the idea is that he realized that that this hasn't helped me. <laughs> that hasn't solved the problem. In fact, an emperor um, is likely to be attached to the many things that he has acquired. Hmm? It's 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 the it's kind of the epitome of worldliness. The king, you know, give him to what did she say? Give him, give him. Give them cake. Marie Antoinette, was it? Right. Living in their own world. Hmm? Let them eat cake. Let them eat cake. When the people, the French people were, 
were without bread, and she heard about it. She said, well, why don't they just eat cake? <laughs> they don't have any bread, you know? <laughs> so what kind of world was she living in, you know? Removed from the people and the practical realities of the kingdom. This was, the, this was then the French Revolution, of course, came about. So um, she was living the life, whatever, of Riley or whatever, you know, just uh, she had everything. So the king, the emperor had everything. And he realized, upon hearing the curse, that he didn't have anything. <laughs> he couldn't take anything with him, and that's a big part of the problem. And so he went to the bank of the Ganges. This was the big uh, event in, uh, in the, uh, of the time. It would be like if Barack Obama decided, well, this presidency just isn't working for me. I know it's not working for you, but <laughs> it's not working for me either. <laughs> and, and so <laughs> I'm going to go to the bank of the Mississippi and I'm going to fast, you know, and try to figure out what, the, you know, what my life's really all about. I was supposed to cha bring the change, you know, and nothing's changed. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, then imagine what, how dramatic that would be. You know, he put on a loincloth and went to the banks of the Mississippi and... I said, I'm going to be with the people who are going to get flooded here, and, you know, I'm just going to search, you know, search. And so that would be a big, big news event, right? So this was, this was a big event. And so the idea is that people came from all over the subcontinent of India, different schools of thought. And Hinduism itself is, is very pluralistic. It includes many different, though related, uh, theological uh, conceptions. There, is a, there are many uh, certain things that all of the different sects have in common. Um, you know, they all accept that there's a difference between a self, atma, consciousness, and matter. And they all uh, accept that that, that that conscious entity that we are is, is encased, so to speak, with, identified with matter in this form as a result of something in our past, karma, and there's going to be a future and another life. And there are many, many, many of these types of things in common. And that the means to realize that required um, moving away from taking, from exploitation, hmm? moving away from the world and the identity, I should say, that is formed by our senses contacting sense objects. We taste, we touch, we... We, we smell, we hear sights and sounds and forms, and messages, messages, so to speak, are kind of like related to our mind. The mind says, I like this, I like that, that felt good, that felt bad, that was hot, that was cold, this is happy, this is sad. And a world of goods and bads and happies and sads and likes and dislikes is formed in our mind that we live within. It's a, it's a not-so-sovereign world, really. Uh, because everybody else's world is just a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And so there's a problem. Is it hot or is it cold? Is it good or is it bad? These perceptions, to a large extent, are relative to the media, the, the instruments by which we're making that determination, our senses and our mind. But the senses and mind are really something that, according to the Vedanta, is animated by the self. We don't think because we have a mind, the mind gets in the way of our knowing. We don't know, I should say, because we have a mind. We don't see because we have eyes. The eyes actually get in the way of our seeing. We are the seer, we are the knower as consciousness. 
And this is a certain body made of senses and mind, a certain covering of the body that that doesn't allow me to see my full self and experience the full nature of being. Mm-hmm. And so I think that my experience is contingent upon senses. My knowing is contingent upon mind and so forth. And the whole idea of meditation is to is to move back from the call of the senses to the world. Like they say, don't just do something, sit there. You know, it used to be don't just sit there, do something. So don't just do something, why don't you just sit there and go within instead of going without hmm? and developing all these attachments for things that form then an identity. In other words, my I is informed by my sense of my. What I think is mine defines what I think I am. Hmm? I'm, I'm, it's my car, so I'm a, you know, it's my, I used to like the, you know, the Marlboro man, you know, the guy used to cough on that horse till he got cancer. You know, you ride out on the horse, Marlboro man. <laughs> and so they make the ads, right, just, just, you know, so that somebody thinks, yeah, that's me. I smoke Marlboros, you know, or, or I drive, you know, Volvos. And, and so the my is our I, so to speak. Hmm? But the reality is that nothing is ours, so that the I that is derived from our sense of my is, uh, it's, uh, it's not going to endure. It's in danger. It's an endangered species. And so there's some trepidation that we live with as a result of this sense of I that we've arrived at as a result of our attachments. So the idea of meditation is to move meditation to move back from those attachments. And rather than just um, following the call of the wild, so to speak, whatever feels good, you do whatever the, whatever the sense object draws upon us, we, we go for it. We, we we said that we sit back, we control the, the senses in mind, and turn that that seeking energy within, with the idea that that my adding things onto myself, sense of self, my life won't improve by letting go of things. Hmm? My life will improve. I'll come to know more about myself. It's a kind of a giving, if you will, a giving to yourself. Give to yourself. Let go of the heavy things that you're carrying. Hmm? Your load will be lighter. What, you, what your capacity is, will, you will find it's much is much different. Hmm? Um, the idea is that by giving, then we gain. We can't hold up a sign or something. See what I got for this giving, but we grow by by the giving, by the sacrifice. So, beginning of the sacrifice, I mean to withdraw from taking, just from a life of exploitation. This is what meditation is about. Um, and we may do that in one sense, in a relative sense. We may say, I'm not going to take, therefore I'm not going to drink milk from cows that are exploited. I'm not going to participate in that kind of exploitation. So I'll drink from, you know, Swami's cows, you know, and I like to come and see them and they're well taken care of and I make my determinations of how I'm not going to exploit. But unfortunately, and that's a good thing to do, and we should all do that, uh, but the idea of meditation is, seeks to take us a little bit further and says, as much as we have identified with matter, we're going to we're going to be 
taking on some level. So is there a way to not take at all? And the answer is yes, and that is by understanding how full you are in and of yourself as a unit of consciousness, which is realized through meditation by going within. So we give up the exploitation by way of wisely thinking that is more exploitative than I'm prepared to participate in. We make our ethics like this, and they're sound, they make sense for this world, and then we want to live in this world soundly in such a way that we'll have energy to go beyond the limits of our humanity, so to speak, or experience the fullness of our human potential, which is to realize our self. Hmm? That self that is not Californian, not man or woman, male or female or black or white, that's moving through different bodies and by the force of karma and our attachments and so forth. So we want to make an ethical, sound kind of outlook about how to live, how to take as little as possible, exploit as as little as possible, and then with the energy derived from not being a full-on exploiter, channel that into directly into spiritual growth. So find time every day for meditation, for spiritual practice, whatever the practice may be. Basically speaking, all the sects have some mystical side to them. That's the real heart of the tradition. Or there are Christian mystics, there are Islamic mystics, Sufis, for example, there are Hindu mystics, and then there are the Hindu fundamentalists, there are the Islamic fundamentalists, there are the Christian fundamentalists, so on. So find time for real spiritual practice. Um, and so the king, the emperor, there he was. You know, he was. He realized, I have everything. I'm the man who has everything, and I've got nothing. Really, I have no bargaining power. It doesn't work now. I'm up against time, and my time is up. And time and tide waits for no man or woman, as it said. So, um, what to do? He went to the bank of the Ganges. He fasted, and out of nowhere came the boy. Here was the king. Here was the boy, Sukadev, 16 years old, and he was naked. Hmm? And everyone, all the other sages and wise persons gathered, they saw him, they all stood up. They said, he has understood how to solve the problem of death. He has no attachments. Hmm? That's the idea. He walked naked. He had no attachments. He he was in the world, but he was not of the world. Hmm? Especially at a young age. He was 16. So a 16-year-old boy is, you know pretty active and especially in today's culture <laughs> you know we were checking out the opposite sex and the, the hormones are going and so on and so forth so usually renunciation hmm, is meant for later in life after one's kind of played out their um, their, their, uh, their life of a relationship with a significant other they've raised children and, and so on they're wise now they want to re- kind of retire and do what's important and pursue their spiritual life. And and because they've exhausted certain desires in an ethically sound way, those desires are not going to trouble them when they sit down to meditate. So whereas a 16-year-old boy wants to sit down to meditate, well, there's, there's a lot of things going on in the world, and the whole world's after youth. The government wants you, you know, for the military, the corporations want you, the universities want you. You, you you think, I'm really like desirable. <laughs> I'm kind of like the center here. You know, this is the intoxication of adolescence, right? So to sit and meditate 
at that at that point successfully. This is that's that's not easy to do. So here was this boy; he was 16 years old, naked, and they could understand. Oh, he, he's very special. So he was given the seed of esteem. Hmm. It wasn't understood by the common people. Children were, were running after him and throwing things at him and making fun of him, thinking he was like a bag bag man or something in San Francisco. You know, he was like oblivious to the external uh, world. Again, walking naked and so forth. But when he was when he sat on the seat, and the king asked his questions, what came from his mouth? Hmm? That was everyone was the breath was was taken by that. Hmm? And the king, the prince, there, the king, the emperor listened. Let's say for seven days and seven nights fasting. That the idea is how much he paid attention. Hmm? The idea is also that he had seven days to live, like all of us: Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And one of them, that's it. Hmm? Whatever where our sense of self is and value based on attachment, it's all it's brought into question in a big way, right? What have you really gained in your life now? What are you taking with you? Hmm? Only yourself goes. And only to the extent that you know yourself are you going in knowledge. And if you don't know yourself because you've just added things onto yourself in the name of improving yourself, because you don't understand yourself by attachment and acquisition and exploitation, that's all false currency. It has no purchasing power hmm? Beyond, uh, in the land of consciousness. Hmm? It's negative numbers. It's it's like uh, it's the karmic implication you've taken it, and now you owe. So off to work you go. So so anyway, this is the setting now. Here in this section of the Bhagavad, the uh, Sutta Goswami is telling the sages is again of the setting in which he heard this this teaching, which was the prince fasting and the boy Sukadev coming naked and speaking. And so he had started to talk about that, and the sages have asked, tell us more about that boy and about the emperor. This is really fascinating, they've said. And, um, and how was it, they asked, that this book, this text, the Bhagavad, at that time was spoken in that way? Where did Sukadev, in other words, get that, that, uh, the, the knowledge that he spoke? Where did he learn? Give us some history and so forth. And so this takes us then to the to the where we are today, and, and this will take us to the balance of the chapter. It's a series of uh, verses, poetry, that um, uh, that constitutes the beginning of answering these sages' questions that will carry on for several chapters, hmm? and stories will be told in the context of answering those questions, so we'll go inside another story and inside another story and, and, and so forth. And so he wants to begin here by answering their question about where the boy, the naked boy, Sukha, got his, uh, the, the, the wisdom of the Bhagavat that he spoke. What was the, what's the history of that? <clears throat> and so, Sutta Uvach Dwapare, Samanu prapte trite juga parayaye jata parasharad jogi vayasyam kalayahore. He says that. So the Sudha Goswami answers this as well. In a, he says, uh, a long time ago, uh, some time ago, the second millennium, 
Overlap the third and the great sage Vyas was born to Parashara in the womb of Satyavati, the daughter of Vasu. So some history. He's basically now speaking about these, this idea of time cycles in Hinduism. You know, the Hinduism is a, it posits a, a, a multiverse conception of cosmology the, uh, where there are many universes and they expand and they contract in long epic cycles. And as they expand, all the, the living beings, they're differentiated from one another by, by karma, by the, their differences. And um, then the cycle co- goes back, it, it contracts, and those that haven't come out of the cycle by meditation become liberated, hmm? enlightened. They remain in the cycle and they go back and they contract with the universe into a homogeneous kind of a condition. Hmm? And then the, then the universes expand again and that expansion is informed by the, the karma, which is kind of has much to do with like the structure of the world um, of the previous cycle. So this is this is a poetic uh, understanding uh, represented here in the Bhagavatam of cosmology that corresponds with some uh, prominent thinkers in the scientific community today who have wondered uh, as to the cause of the Big Bang, which is the prominent cosmological theory that there was a big bang and the universe expanded from that. Um, and and uh, some have posited the idea that there is uh, no cause to the big bang in that the universe ex- expands and contracts and expands again. So each big bang has a big bang that precedes it and time extends unlimitedly in both directions. Hmm? And so there's an infinite, from a time without beginning, these contract, expansions and contractions have been going on. Hmm? It's hard to you know, fit between your head like something had no beginning, it's been going on for a time without beginning because we are accustomed by our conditioning to want beginnings, finalities, and so forth. Sometimes the example is given in the, in, in, in the, in the poetry of the seed in the tree or the chicken and the egg. Same idea. What comes first, the seed or the tree? What comes first, the chicken or the egg? And you just kind of go, it's kind of like a Zen cone, you know, like, uh, must be more to it than that, right? <laughs> There's no answer. It's the answer to everything. I don't know, you know. So you have to think about it. It's meant to, like, meant to, like, try to take you out of thinking, which is part of the whole problem. Hmm? <laughs> We think we'll think our way out of the problem, but we've thought our way into the problem, so to speak. So uh, it says, don't try to stop thinking for a while. There are things beyond thought, hmm? uh, beyond your, your, your mind, beyond your rational faculty. And, you know, the rational faculty wants to control and get, get, a, get a grip on things and so forth. And the message is, it's not in your control. Let go. It's okay. Somebody else in control, it's not you, but he's friendly, so it's okay. You know? And you've been going against the system, that's why you feel you know, the world's not working for you. Go with the system. Stop trying to control it, to run it, 
to govern it yourself, let it be. Hmm? There will be an answer. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> so, so, <clears throat> so here he begins, he, he, they had asked about when this happened, so he said, in this particular time cycle um, of, 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 the, of, of Kali, Kali means quarrel, so this is supposed to be the time cycle, and time here is in these cycles the, of, the, within the universe, expanding and contracting, there are these cycles of time within that long period, epic periods of time that are posited. And they, they, um, what they're really about is kind of the quality of time. Time is more often thought of as in terms of a quantitative uh, calculation, but they, they're talking about quality of time. So the Kali Yuga, or millennia, means a qu- the quality of the time is quarrelsome. It's, it's full of hypocrisy. And um, this is what Kali means, quarrel, hypocrisy. And we're said to be living in the Kali millennium. It's pretty, whether you want to believe all this or not, that's pretty clear what we were doing that. Uh, hypocrisy, and it is said about it that the leaders of governments will um, be unqualified. These are the predictions in the texts in this age. And they will be, um, they won't be honest, they'll be hypocritical, and so forth. We're really like, seeing this kind of thing now. And people will fight over nothing, hmm? practically. Um, all these things are mentioned in the book. This is quite a long time ago this book was was written. So it's a bit predictive, I suppose. But he says, anyway, at the, be- at the beginning of this, this millennium, hmm, then there was a great uh, uh, wise person named Parashara who um, had a son named uh, Vyas. And Vyas is the, then the legendary author of this Purana and all of the sacred wisdom. Hindus, Hindus deposit, there's one author to all these sacred texts, legendary fellow. Um, and But if we study here in this section, as it mentioned, he, he's, the idea is that he gave certain types of... Not, the idea was that knowledge was was uh, intuited and it was also handed down uh, orally but because of the age of quarrel at the onset it was thought it should be written down. Hmm? People's memories will be bad in Kali Yuga and um, their lives will be short and so on and so forth. So to compensate for the time the intuited wisdom should be compiled, written down for the benefit of the people that they can take advantage of, study it and so forth. And just by hearing it once from the guru wouldn't be enough. You'd have to hear it a thousand times. It'll go in one ear, it'll go out the other ear, and um, and so on. So this is the t- so to be the times in which we live. An interesting point arises here because there's a night, there is a a, a popular notion that in India there was a caste system and only certain people were privileged to do certain things and so forth. And there's some, some truth to that, but if you study the system carefully, the caste system is a breakdown of really a, an equitable system that was one in which natural authority ruled. In other words, by determining what was obvious, the natural characteristics of a person, 
that person would become an authority in a particular area. Hmm? And that would be his or her or persons like that would be that would be their, their their area of expertise without having to be voted or appointed or, or whatnot. So it's kind of a it's kind of a anarchy supposed to work like that ironically or incidentally, that it doesn't deny natural authority, but falsely appointed authority. So if I find that you are an authority in carpentry because that's just what's come to be in you, then I acknowledge, well, you're, you, I can learn carpentry from you hmm? or music from another or whatever it may be. So this was kind of the idea. So the, but, but when, when this idea breaks down, hmm, then the idea, when it broke down, the idea came to be that whatever you were born in whatever family, your, your destiny would be locked there. Hmm? So if you were born in a family of carpenters, you had to be a carpenter. Hmm? But this was not what the system was actually about. The person's position in the social fabric was to be determined by their guna, by their qualities and their activities, not by their birth. Hmm? So the breakdown of the system became like a seminal system and, uh, and, uh, and so on. And, and so it's in that breakdown of the system it was thought that only the Brahmins, the privileged, if you will, uh, the educated, the, um, the thinkers, the intelligentsia, hmm? um, those who... Uh, an intelligence in that, that system was supposed to be tied to the kind of things that we're talking about. Well, more is less is more. So the Brahmins in the actual system would be renounced. They would live very simply. They would not take any payment for the teaching that they did and so on and so forth. In the breakdown of the system, someone would say, I'm a Brahmin because I'm born in this family. Therefore, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm the priest and you should pay me. And if you don't pay me, you won't get a blessing. And it was kind of like the um, indulgences of the Catholic Church, which was the breakdown in Luther's revolution and so on. So um, anyway, in that breakdown of the system, it's, it's, it's often thought that unless you're born in a Brahmin family, then you could not be the teacher, the guru, uh, regardless of how spiritual you might be. <laughs> So uh, this is an interesting point here because it's mentioned that Parashara um, had a son with Satyavati, the daughter of Vasudha. This Satyavati, if we know the history, was a fisherman's daughter. Parashara was was a, a, a Brahman, intelligentsia, and uh, and uh, wise in a, a Brahman in the true sense. But while he was going to cross the river. He got infatuated by a fisherman's daughter, hmm? and he had union with her out of wedlock, which is very unbecoming for a person of that stature in that culture and so forth. Hmm? And so Vyas was born. So Vyas was an illegitimate child, hmm? and he's the legendary author of all the texts and and the, the the guru, so to speak, the kind of the guru of all the gurus. Uh, if any guru in the lineage makes a point, they have to refer to what Vyas has said and show that it corresponds with that and so forth. So we have the, a very prominent example of how that breakdown of the system is a breakdown 
of the system because in the breakdown of the system, the illegitimate child would not have any any um, access to the priesthood and uh, and and even to read the sacred texts, but to speak of write them, teach them, and uh, and be venerated uh, for, for for such. Hmm? So this he he and this this as we'll hear here as we go on, this was the what he. This Bhagwat, this particular text, among all the texts that he edited and and organized in written form, this was his final final work. So he was he was Vyas was born. Um, he was he go, the text goes on. He was living on the banks of the Saraswati River in the Himalayas. The sun rose. Says here beautifully, he took his morning bath. Hmm? He sat alone to meditate. Hmm? Um, and in that meditation, he saw the anomalies of the yuga that would come to pass. And being concerned about that, with his wisdom and mystic vision and so forth, he decided that these texts, this wisdom that, that we have amongst us, that, that, uh, that, has to, that should be written down, as I said. So, so the text now begins to explanation how he started to write it down. Um, he, um, he organized different people, um, uh, different Brahmins, and gave them different parts of the, t- of the wisdom to write about, and so on and so forth. So there are a number of authors, but one, if you will, kind of editor, one C-E- C-E- CEO, CEO in the publishing company here uh, of the sacred texts. And um, so he divided the Veda, which basically means knowledge, into four sections. And then he took the, the, the uh, uh, historical events and put the wisdom in the context of the historical events which uh, are called the fifth Veda. He divided the Vedas into four. This is the fifth. This includes the Puranas, now which this book, the Bhagavad, falls in the context of. It is the the most uh, directly, overtly spiritual of the Puranas. And so then what? Uh, after the Vedas were divided into these divisions and he commissioned different people and so forth to, um, to author them... Hmm? And it's mentioned here after he he also compiled a book called the Mahabharat, which one chapter of which is the famous Bhagavad Gita. Hmm. Still, after all of this, he was feeling undone, incomplete, despondent, that he hadn't done something was still amiss. He had only the best of intentions with his wisdom, mystic wisdom. He saw the problems of the age. He wanted to write it uh, in such a way that people would be able to take advantage of the knowledge, um, not only compile it in literary form, but Mahabharat was particularly written for people with poor memories and so forth, as it's, as it's said. Still, he said, something's uh, amiss. Evam paritasya sada bhutanam shayasi dvijah. 
Oh, Brahmins, he says, Sudha said, still, this man, Vyasa's mind was not satisfied, although engaged himself entirely in working for the welfare of the common people. This was his only ambition. You'd think that would be fully satisfying. A fully compassionate life, living for the ultimate good of all people. Um, with only this in mind, he compiled these literatures. Still, he was unsatisfied. And so, um, he began to reflect. Hmm? And what he, as the text says here, I'm kind of skimming over it, but um, uh, he started to th- think, he started to get the impression that there's a certain, there's a, there's a central idea to all of this wisdom. And I've talked about it in many different ways, but I haven't directly talked about it in a way that would be, it could be understood in no uncertain terms. I've talked about the nature of consciousness. I've talked about the fact that consciousness is different from matter, and, and I've given many examples. I've spoke about it in so many ways, but what is the full potential of consciousness? Hmm? in enlightenment. What is the life of consciousness? What is the consciousness of consciousness, he wanted to say. Hmm? And I haven't really... um, Maybe that's why I'm feeling incomplete yet. In other words, and where does this all go? It, 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 It has no limit. I'm in a world of of ever a fullness that's ever expanding hmm? in the realm of consciousness and the, the 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 life of consciousness all its potentials the charismatic and uh, immortal life of consciousness not just the stillness if you will the static stillness of realizing i'm different from matter oh, i don't have to die Whew. and I don't have to eat. I don't have to. I'm, I'm, there's nothing that can destroy me. I'm, I, I, and I'm a unit of bliss. That's a big relief from the kind of life we live now. So he said, "That's a moment. Ah, that's an ah moment. Ah. But is there anything after that? Hmm? The relief from material existence. Is there life in immortality and love?" Hmm? What is the love life of consciousness? He started to think, maybe that, I haven't done justice to that. Indeed, I'm still exploring that myself, he's thinking. Hmm? Should I write about that? Could I write about that? Would that be the... This is his thinking. He starts to think like that. And then, as would have it, tasyaivam kilamatmanam man maya Man yamanasya kidyataha krishnasya naradu pyagad ashramam prag udharitam. What happened? Well, the sage Narada, the well-known character in the, in the text, the sage Narada, appeared out of nowhere at his cottage along the banks of the Saraswati in the Himalayas. Hmm? And it said here that he came and he had, he had a smile on his face 
and then he could, means that he could understand exactly what Vyasa's um, confusion was about, his his his, his lacking, and that it, his own inclination about it was accurate, and Nard was coming to give external confirmation to the internal realization of Vyas. So it's the idea that we have we have internal insight, we ought to be able to check it with somebody. Hmm? Because it could be just our imagination, too. Hmm? How do I know that my insight is not just my imagination, my my so there are texts which we can like is the are you experiencing something that corresponds? Like one of my uh one of the students of my, other students of my guru, once said that when I sit and I chant on my 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 rosary, the mantra, he said a blue light comes and surrounds me, and then my guru said, keep chanting, it'll go away. <laughs> so you know you need that kind of, <laughs> you know, the, the mind is. Uh, <laughs> full of tricks and so forth, and we can imagine ourselves into a space that, that doesn't even exist, or it's not real for us, it's not what we're after. And so, the point that point is being made here, Nard appeared on the scene, Nard is the guru of Vyas, he came out of nowhere, out of a necessity, the guru appears out of necessity. After all, there's no meaning to the guru unless there's a teachable moment, or the teacher, until there's a teachable moment. So when there's a teachable moment, somebody feels they need to be taught, then there's room for a teacher. Otherwise, you won't be, ident- be able to identify the teacher. Hmm? So, uh, to, the, to, the, to the, the teacher and one who uh, feels the need to be taught, and these two are one and different. You can't have one without the other. Hmm? There's no meaning to one without the other. So that there's, a, there's a real union between the guru and the student. Hmm? Um, and the necessity, the healthy necessity, that comes within the student, that comes within all of us, we're all students really forever, the healthy necessity that comes within us, this, this is not a kind of material necessity. This is a necessity that is like if a young boy has a necessity to eat, he's healthy, that's good. Hmm? So it's a soul's, the soul's necessity. Then... As that, as we become a little dissatisfied with the status quo, hmm? with the standard fare, hmm? we try to find more. Human life is really about finding the more that we are. There's more than what meets the eye. It said hmm? in common English parlance, "We are the more. Hmm? We are the more." And how to realize that? This is the trick. So anyway. As the necessity for that arises more, then, then the, the system, if you will, responds accordingly. There's life out there. Reality's alive. It's not a dead thing. Hmm? We're alive. So if we're a spark of the fire of consciousness, that fire is, is alive. It's, it's got an agenda. Hmm? We're on it. That we don't realize. We want to put everything on our agenda, but the idea is to be on Realize we were on its agenda, so on the Godhead's agenda. So, at any rate, by the system, then the Godhead kind of generates the the guru principle, if you will, the teacher. Mm-hmm. And so Nard, Vyasa had a spiritual necessity, and Nard appeared suddenly, just like the emperor had the spiritual necessity, and the naked boy appeared on the scene. Mm-hmm. So Nard appears, 
He's smiling, means he's giving some confirmation. You're getting it. You're getting it. Right? And now Nard, the history of Nard then speaking to Vyas, confirming his intuition and and really cementing it by, by instructing him about exactly what he needs to write about, the more that he needs to write about, and how to write about that. That is followed in the continuing of this history in chapter 5. So, we'll stop there. Any question? Well, there are no questions, so I can drink, <laughs> mi- drink milk, I guess. Srimad Bhagavatam, good job. Oh, we pray, man, and